0: Thanks for listening to Kato Sports. I hope you enjoy the pod. Give it a follow. Share it with your mates. I appreciate the love. This is Kato Sports. Welcome into the pod. It's Kato Sports Back again after a large hiatus. I am really sorry to all my listeners that I haven't been able to get out as much content as I'd love to over the last uh, over the last month. Um, I've been away. I've been to the snow camping, uh, I've had some work stuff on. It's just been really tough to get out the episodes, especially with the AFL content when I haven't been able to just sit down and really analyze each game and watch as many games as I've I've wanted to. Um, having said that, I'm back in the swing of it now. I watched most of the games this weekend, um replayed some games this morning, so, I'm absolutely across the AFL and I will be doing an AFL podcast this week. I will be covering all nine games this week. However, after taking a month off, I wasn't taking a month off watching. I was watching everything. I had my finger on the pulse the whole time. Um, But just being able to get the content out there and um, have time to record and all that was, was really difficult. So... I thought with this episode, I'd kind of switch it up a little bit and I'm going to do a month in review. I'm going to cover a few different sports because I want to talk AFL. I want to talk about the Ashes and the cricket and what's going on there. A little bit about the Tour de France, a little bit about uh, the World Cup for the soccer for the women's. I also want to talk a little bit about um, the tennis as well. So lots of different stuff to talk about. Uh, but I'll kick it off with how I've seen the last month of footy and uh, we'll go from there. So really what we've seen, what the overarching themes from my perspective over the last four weeks is that Collingwood are clearly the best close game team in the competition. They're going to have a home final. They're going to at least play two games at the G in September. How, how are you going to beat a team like this? They are beatable. They are absolutely beatable. But how do you train to beat a team like that? That's that's the key question. I mean, you watch Hawthorne play Richmond uh, this week in the footy. And Hawthorne had the lead in the game. The game was 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 over, but they just didn't know how to finish. Richmond, who've come from behind before, they, you know, they're an experienced team. They had some older guys. They put a bit more pressure on. They kept their position and stuff like that. They were able to come over the top, kick five, six goals in the last quarter, and win the game. Collingwood have been in that type of situation where it's a one point, two point game so many times over the last 18 months. They always hold their position. They always stay a little bit further out of the contest than the team that they're versing. They always don't overcommit numbers to the ball. They always know what to do to move the ball forward effectively. If they're getting beaten in the air, they'll run the ball. If they're getting, you know, tackled too much and it's too pressurized, yes, they'll take the ground and they'll move the ball forward. They, they really have just shown the ability in that last quarter to go situationally, we know what to do. And that's because they have a absolutely killer back line. They've got so many old heads running through the midfield to work with the, the Dacos stars, the younger guys. But, you know, you pair them with Sidey and Pendles and Tay Adams and and Dugowie, it's just they've got so many options. Tommy Mitchell, I know he got injured on the weekend, but, you know, it – it's just it's all these old heads working with these young stars. Quaynor's now a bit of a star, you know. Nobles made a real name for him himself. The forward line's got options galore. Jamie Elliott's the the epitome of a clutch, the the epitome of the clutch player in the AFL at the moment. And so, yeah, I, I think just starting with Collingwood, they are the tier. They're what everyone's going after. But it's not just general gameplay; it's situational gameplay. So. It's going to be Port and Brisbane and Melbourne that are going to have to work on how they go in these tight clutch games because that's what it's going to be at the end of the day. And uh, I think Collingwood are in a major advantage because those teams that were a little bit better in the clutch than them last year, Geelong, Sydney, th- these types of teams, Richmond as well, very good in those tighter games, I think. Um they are, you know, a chance to not make the finals. I, Sydney probably will not be playing finals. Richmond are not inside the eight. Geelong are holding on by the skin of their teeth right now. So, you know, it's very close in there. And so I think Collingwood gets a major advantage there because we've seen how, you know, unsituationally good the Doggies in Melbourne and Brisbane have been and Port haven't won many big, big games. So, um. Yeah, I think Collingwood are at a major advantage. Looking at the rest of it, I mean, GWS is been the team that is absolutely that. I don't think they've overperformed, but their team is is built very, very well. And you look at uh, their back six to start off with; it is a impenetrable fortress at the moment. That's that's how it, when I watched them play against uh, Gold Coast on the weekend. And in previous weeks, I've seen it as an impenetrable fortress. They were able to get uh, the jump on Melbourne. They were able to get the jump on the Crows because they concede nothing. Sam Taylor is one of the best players at getting to contests, third man up, intercept defender. Harry Himmelberg's one of the best ball users. Buckley's a lockdown defender. They use the ball really well off halfback as well, whether it's coming or whether it's Whitfield. It's just it's just very hard to score on them. They make good decisions, they lock down teams, and and they're able to get the ball out the other way. And people forget that they've got talent everywhere. Just like I said with the pies, it's a mixture of these old heads and young guys. It's you know, Josh Kelly and Ward and Canelio mixed in with Tommy Green and Callahan and and the young guys coming through <clears throat> around them, whether it's Anguin, whether it's, um, you know, Brent Daniels in the forward line, who's a bit older, but he hasn't played as much footy because he's he's been injured. But they've just got excitement everywhere. And then Toby Green is the best. He's the All-Australian captain for mine at the moment. He's the most dangerous forward in the league at the moment. Probably the most dangerous player in the league at the moment. The way he completely tailed up Ben Long on the weekend and then completely towed up Powell. It was just a, it was a masterclass, but he's been doing it week in, week out for the whole season. He's just, he's an incredible player and JWS are now just not, the, you know, the team that, oh, you'd roll in and you'd, you'd think maybe that you're getting the four points, you're chocolating up that week. No, sorry, Bob. This is a team that will beat you. That's that's it. They're probably better than your team. Whoever you support, they're probably better than you. And that's a reality that a lot of people don't understand. I mean, a lot of the people that listen to this podcast go for Geelong and Carlton and Richmond and Essendon and Hawthorne. I, I guarantee you, GWS is probably better than most of those teams. So, yeah, I mean, what happens in September will happen, but I'm sure... Uh, they will be very close to it if not there. I've really liked Carlton's last month. Oh, my God. They they were crying out for a, a little bit of stability and ball use and, you know, just a few cool heads. And as I've discussed with a few people recently, the additions of guys like Jack Martin, and, and and David Cunningham, these types of guys into that forward mix has, are just around half forward has really helped them use the ball a bit better. They're moving the ball a bit better. They're moving it quicker. I mean, I know Harry McKay's out injured. I have said that I think that Carlton are probably a better team, no Mackay, because he misses a lot of shots on goals. And I think he crowds out the forward line for Kurnow. And you, if you give Kurnow one-on-ones and a bit of space, he's just so damaging. He is the most damaging up there with that, you know, Toby Green in terms of the most damaging guys in the competition. And I want Charlie Kerner with as much space as I can give him in in 2023. He's just that good. I also think Carlton have just started, you know, they got the – they got the kick up the butt when they're versing, you know, a Hawthorne or a Gold Coast and they went, all right, well, we we can't actually lose this game. We're that much better. We've got that much more talent flowing around. We've we've been doing it together as a group for so long. How can we just, you know, fold these games? And they didn't, and they won a couple, and now they're starting to get the whole thing going. They whack Port it home. Uh, they get a good win on the weekend. Their percentage is nice and high as well. And they're in that bracket of teams with Geelong and, and, and Richmond where they are all on that same percentage. So, you know, at the moment, Richmond, unfortunately, are 16, 17 percentage points below Carlton, um, at, who are five below Geelong. So Geelong have the upper hand in that little battle, but for Carlton to get a couple of dead rubber mega wins against West Coast this season, has been a massive help. And, I mean, West Coast, just on that note, have been the biggest disgrace so far this year. The, the biggest disgrace. You cannot roll out a team as an AFL standard team. You cannot roll them out and go, well, we're not going to chase. We're not going to tackle. We're not going to put any pressure on. We're you know We're filled with skill errors. Our old guys don't try. Our young guys aren't good enough. It's just, it's an embarrassment to the league. And it really makes everyone go, why are we playing a 24-game season and why are we not playing a, a 17, 18-round season everyone plays each other once? Because I get it. If everyone's competitive, then sure, the 24-round the season works. But it's a blight on the game and it's a blight on the league if there are teams that aren't at any standard. They haven't sacked a single person that works there. The coach is still there. Old guys and, you know, Basically, if you roll up and you fit, you're getting a game at the moment. It's just, it's uncompetitive football and it's bringing down the level of quality and the, you know, the level of atmosphere around this season because people are going to go, well, how come Carlton's got better percentage than, you know, Richmond or, or, or Essendon? Well, because you played West Coast twice already and it's, yeah, it's a bit of a disgrace. Talking about disgraces, uh, the Fremantle Footy Club. The Gold Coast Football Club, Stewie Jew has gone. I would suspect that John Longmuir is uh, absolutely very close to gone. Longmuir is just – he's implemented a game plan that didn't work, is is what's happened. He put all his chips in his basket of a game plan that was very kick mark. It was a bit slow. It was a bit too perfect, and Fremantle – completely choked it up this year. And we've seen that the best game plans are the helter-skelter, move the ball quickly, let your players take control of their own fate, let them go out and win the game. You know, if they deviate from the game plan, then so what? Let them go out and be the players that they were. When you're a junior football player, you are the best player in your team. Then you go to, you know, your team Whatever it is, Tac Cup or Waffle or or Sample or whoever it is, and you're the best one or two or three guys in your team. You're playing for your for your state. You're playing for you know country, whatever it is. You're you're one of the best players going around. And then you get told to come into a team and go, yeah. Look, we're going to give you a role, and your role is just going to be your role, and you can't deviate from that. And you know you're on the wing, and you're going to run up and down, and you just make sure you hit your targets and you know that that's it. It's like well, it's hard for a lot of players to be like that. You look at a team like Collingwood have done it really well. A team like Port Adelaide, they give a lot of players the license to go out there and do what they do best. Sam Palpepper goes out there and does what he does best. So does Dan Houston. So does Butters. So does Rosie. Dersma's flying all over the park. Their, their whole team is centered around, go and do what you're best at. Winesy stays at the contest because that's, you know, what he's good at and that's how he is going to thrive as a player. So, you know, I just think that Fremantle have shackled a lot of the guys in their team and not allowed them to be freewheeling, running and gunning. And and it's going to cost uh, Longmira's job or, and it should because he hasn't implemented the right game plan. He hasn't given the players enough confidence to go out there and be there themselves. Um, and they're not going to play finals in 2023. And they've traded their picks to the Ds. They've traded their first two picks to the Ds. So they're going to get no help at the draft. The Ds are only going to get stronger. There's a real case that the Ds will go out and get uh, the young fella from, from Vic country, Harley Reed, he doesn't want to go to West Coast. Melbourne have got the draft capital. You can see how something's going to work out there and Melbourne are just going to get even stronger than they already are. Um, uh, You know, Essendon have fallen off the last month. We we always thought that they were winning a lot of games and they were honest to their team, but they just maybe aren't that good enough with their list yet. They've got a long, lot of young dudes. They need those guys to get games into them. It get, becomes a bit tougher. I mean, we watched them play the dogs last week it was guys like Bont and Liber that really shredded that game. And when those guys are playing Archie Perkins and, and, and Wells and some of the younger guys, Hobbsy, it, it's a bit tougher for those guys to step up because Bont is, you know, a top five player in the comp. Libba is a top 10 player in the comp. And 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 I think people underestimate Libba. Libba is as good, if not, you know, him and Bont are very close. They do different things, but Libba can, can, kill you in a game because he's the only person that, that gets um, contested footy. He's the only person that gets clearances. You know, everyone goes for it and Libra's the only one that gets it. It's like, oh, my God. I just think Libra has been one of the more underrated players of the last 10 years. He's just sensational. The fact that he doesn't have an All-Australian medal is disgusting. I, 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 he's He should have one. He should have one this year. If he doesn't get one, jeez, God help me. As for the other things, look, Geelong have come back up. They're they're back into it. St. Kilda have, you know, been able to hold on to their good start to the season. I think they're probably just hanging on. They've had a few bad performances recently, but, you know, credit to them. They're they're going okay. Um, Ups and downs. Obviously, the Crows have fallen off a little bit, which sucks. They've lost a couple of close games, one to Melbourne, one to Collingwood that they, you know, they probably had in the bag at points and, and I guess against Melbourne, they were coming hard at him. We'll see what happens there. Um, so yeah, it's it's been a, a, an interesting kind of period. I'm really I'm really sad that the uh, young fellow from Brisbane Ashcroft, has done his ACL. It's just he he was on that Dacos trajectory, you know, getting a lot of midfield time, getting a lot of game into him early. He was a great user of the ball. He was you know probably even underrated for how good of a start to a career he's had because he was in Brisbane and obviously there's a little bit less media attention up there, but geez, I mean, that's a massive loss for them because he was, you know, not only starting 22, but just a lock for that midfield three or four guys every single week and be able to give him 20, um, 20 center uh, bounce attempts a week. So yeah, really sad news for Brisbane there. How it's going to shape up for the rest of the year, I'm not really, you know, expecting too much movement. I think maybe Carlton can come up. Maybe St. Kilda goes down. That would be the one switch for me at the moment. Um, Outside of that, I don't see much uh, eight movement. But, yeah, I think the way Carlton is playing, they could go up, and I think St. Kilda will be the one that drops out. But I think GWS, Geelong, the Dogs – uh, they'll they'll all keep their position inside the eight at the moment um let's move over to the cricket uh after the break so I'll see you after the break welcome back to the podcast as I said it is a month in review 24th of July today Monday love coming to you I'm Obviously very sorry that I haven't been able to get to you. But one of the reasons, one of the main reasons I haven't been able to get the podcast to you is that at 8 p.m. every night, the cricket begins and it has been nothing less than electric. Every session, every over, most balls, something has been happening. It's been engrossing television like we haven't seen in, in test match test match cricket in so long. Uh, I just uh, where will I start? <clears throat> I think there has been some amazing cricket played. Mitch Marsh's hundred, Kawaj's hundred, the the Bestow wicket, Stokes's one hundred and seventy, um, uh, Cummins to win the game with the bat. The the moments have just been. Uh, they're the some of the best we've seen in cricket and probably some of the best we've seen in test match cricket over a long period to shovel them all into one five test match series. And we're, we're four tests in. I mean, the, the English are now completely outraged at Australia because it rained in England. They had, they've won the, the toss four times in a row. They've done exactly what they've wanted four times in a row. They decided to indulge Jonathan Besto in his <clears throat> in his hundred, give him an extra 15 overs. They got the extra session of play. They only took the one wicket. The game ends up getting washed out off with the last two days, and, and and Australia have retained the ashes. But the <sighs> The drama in each match has just been unparalleled. I think we've made some horrendous captaining decisions. I really don't think Cummins has captained very well. Some of our fielding decisions have been weird. Our team selection has been odd to say the least. We haven't got that right. Um, But we won the first two games. And we won the first two games because we batted well in parts. We won the first two games because we were able to take wickets. They've made some terrible decisions as well. I mean, to 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 not decide to continue batting in Test 1 will uh, for sure be one of the pieces of, of uh, history that I don't think England will be able to get over. And maybe they don't realise it now, but to go out there, score 390 runs, and then declare after one day because of their new style, because of the Baz ball, because of, you know, a little bit of arrogance is going to cost them this. It it has probably cost them this urn. It has cost them having the ashes in England. No doubt when it goes back to Australia again, it'll be very hard for them to to reclaim it. it. It's not that easy. And so... I, I, I really think that early, early test arrogance is going to cost them massively. I mean, looking at both teams, I think bairstow has been one of the more—he's uh, been such a character in that he's been terrible with his with his uh, with his gloves dropping catches, sloppy behind the wicket, then sloppy with the bat. I mean. Uh, Australians have had such a laugh at Berstow's expense for, for four four weeks. I think from an Australian perspective, we've wanted besto in the team every time. They, they haven't made the change. They didn't want to bring folks in. Um, and I think that's benefited Australia massively. Uh, obviously, Stokes has killed us in parts. I think England got it right when they changed their bowling attack, when they decided to move to Wokes and, and Wood. That has really helped them. They've, they've had some speed. They've had some real pinpoint bowling in in, in Wokes over the last couple of tests. Um, and they were things that Australia really haven't been able to combat. And that's that's why we probably looked really weak in that fourth test. We just haven't been able to deal with those two guys. So, um, yeah, it has been an electric test match. There's been so many mistakes by both teams. There's been so many great moments and I think the banter between the two countries going back and forth is at an all-time high. I think Piers Morgan is is making an absolute fool of himself regularly, but I guess that's his brand. His brand is, you know, if you ignore me or, or you know, try to ignore me if you can, but as soon as you get involved, you know, you're buying into who I am, which is, you know, you know, you feed my machine, which is all about clicks and all about, you know, hysteria and stuff like that. So he's he's an absolute idiot, but I mean the banter between the two, I've got a thousand buddies who've been over in England, some further testing in at Lord's, some were up in Manchester earlier in the week. It's you know, everyone is getting around it, everyone's involved. You know, obviously the Australians are getting their ass absolutely kicked in the field, sandpaper this, you know. <laughs> it's just been a, it's been a really interesting exercise in how australians and english have that relationship and you know a lot of back and forth but the cricket has just been awesome I, you can't turn it off and it is it is just you know each ball each over each relationship the Ollie robinson stuff when he was coming out and saying what he was saying was just absolute and a disgrace, I would say. But but anyway, then the Kawaja relationship with the old guys at Lords in the crowd was just another moment. Nothing to do with cricket. The, the the rules of the rain, the stumping. These are things that are not really cricket. It's not part of the cricket, but they've been so ingrained in this series. So it's 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 provided so much other stuff and so much other um meat to this series that it's just been hard to, to look away from. So from the cricket point of view, I mean, yeah, we as a country, Australia, haven't been at our best, but we've still got those two early wins, which has secured us the urn. And at the end of the day, you know, we can go out and we'll, we'll give Test 5 a crack and it means something for sure. You know, this is a pr- – it, it – It's so odd that the last test, which is really a dead rubber, probably means more than the first four that actually counted for the result. And that's not really, you know, it shouldn't be like that, but England have been so desperate to claim moral victories. I mean, they've won three of the four tests morally. It's just, (laughs) so, you know, they've kind of suckered Australia into it now and and, 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 and brought us in and we go, okay, well, this last test really does mean something, even though it, it doesn't mean anything. But, uh, yeah, it'll be very interesting to happen, to see what happens in a couple of days' time uh, at the Oval. Cr- obviously, the cricket's been great, but as well, I've been flicking between the cricket and the Tour de France. Uh, I'm, I just, every year, I fall in love with the Tour again. It's July 1st hits, and I am... Absolutely, I just, I fall in love with France. I fall in love with the countryside. I fall in love with the riders. The Tour de France is the most brutal sport sporting event in the world, guaranteed. I've seen people get in the ring, in the octagon. I've seen people battle it out. You watch, you know, the, the super marathons and, and everything but, but cycling is a team sport where they people are pushed to their absolute extreme. They are going through any conditions. It's not like cricket where two seconds of rain and they're pulling the guys off. It rains, you're riding. And it doesn't matter if you're riding uphill or downhill at 100 k's an hour. It doesn't matter whether you're riding on cobblestones or regular. It, does, it just doesn't matter. You're out there. You're in the elements. You've, you're, you're supporting teammates, you're doing it alone, you're on an island, you know, it's just, it's just insane. And you're doing these at mega speeds with output that you can't even fathom. No average person can go close to the amount of output that these guys are, are, are able to produce every single day of the tour. And You know, people are falling off bikes. People are falling off the side of the mountain. People are getting ripped up by the concrete and getting worked on as they're riding and then continuing to ride for hundreds of k's whilst cut up and split open and broken arms and and injured legs. It's just, it is the ultimate warrior sport. And these guys go out there and they they just battle it out. And I, 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 what can you do but sit there and just be, in awe and in this particular tour it was really a pogachar versus versus Gore race. I really thought that Pogacar had a massive chance to I I think about four or five stages at stage about 13 or 14 when it was close, about eight seconds between them. I thought Pogachar was riding a bit better at the time. And they're on the mount they're on a mountain stage. Pagacha goes to break. He goes to get outside from Vingugor to get the extra points that you get, the bonus points on the top of the mountain, get over the top and then continue on. And the crowd gets in the way. I mean, you're on these climbs going up with everything that I've just said. And the crowd is an element. They're in your face. They're screaming. They're going off their heads. There's flags in your way. And the crowd gets in the way, which means that the motorcycle filming gets in the way, which means Pagacha can't get out, which means he has to fall back in line and he falls behind Vingar who gets the extra points, gets over the top, wins the stage, gets the extra points there, and you go, oh, my God. Oh, well, I think uh, uh, Rodriguez won the stage but Vingar Gore came second, got the extra points, and you go, geez, this is on top of everything that you have to put in, on top of the fact that you know, you need the team supporting you, and all the output, the crowd, and the, and the motorcycle that are filming the race are elements that you need to face and battle against. Is is just incredible. And uh, I didn't know this going into the tour, but Jonas fingergore has the second highest recorded VO two max of anyone ever. So his ability to put out. Oxygen and and, and produce is the second highest recorded ever. It is just an insane measurement to have. And not only does he have that, but him and Pog are both absolutely two of the most gracious people in sport. They are lovable. They are lovely, nice, smile. They are competitors. They are, you know, switched on. It was just. The battle between those two, I know it broke out to six or seven minutes. Pagaccia got broken at the bottom of a climb, like late in the tour. But for those two to be the two poster boys there, one from Denmark, one from Slovenia, I I, uh, I I loved it. I loved watching Jai Hindley, the Aussie, be up there and involved and win a stage and have the yellow jersey for a day, and then to lose it the next day and get that reality check of how hard this really is. Um, he battled hard throughout. You know, he finished, I think, seventh overall. So, you know, a real testament to him in his first ever tour and he'll he'll come back stronger than ever next year and Bora Hansgrohe will, will you know, really be up there. I mean, Jasper Phillipson won every stage he could early on. Uh, one of the more dominant uh, Tour de France's by a sprinter ever. So an absolute hats off to Jasper Philipsen. Um He was really a one-man sprinting machine. So... I mean that was great. I mean we people forget that Pagacha is still one of the youngest riders in the in the <laughs> in the Tour he won the young rider competition. He wore the white jersey. So, he'll be back better than ever and he'll be up against the Yumbo Visma bus that just keeps on rolling. They've just got such a strong team there around Jonas Vingegaard and whether it's Wout van Aert or Seb Kuss or you know, they they've got the characters there to really put it on people. Um and they did again, flex their muscle in this tour. So another just great tour, another great summer of Europe sport where you could flick between the cricket and the and the cycling so easily. And it just be such an enjoyable experience. And um, yeah, I'm absolutely elated with how both have kind of turned out. Obviously the cricket, there was a bit of a dampener with the weather, but uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's cricket. Cricket is cruel at times and it's got weird rules and it's got built weirdly, but hey, the English built them and they wrote the rules. So I guess that's – everyone just plays uh, to the letter of the law and that's what happens. So great summer of, of of sport. Next segment, I'll just do a little bit of dibs and dabs, a little bit of NFL, a little bit of NBA, a little bit of uh, tennis as well. So I will be back after the break. Let's go. Welcome back. Uh, Going to finish up with just like a few bits and pieces from a few sports. Let's start with the NBA. Uh, I am really interested to see how Victor Wembenyama, the number one pick, goes at the Spurs. I mean, just as a bit of context, the Spurs started... Uh, the whole resting players thing they were the ones that came in and said we don't need everyone to play the long periods we're going to make sure that we get the most out of the guys that we do we're going to make sure that they get developed we're going to make sure they have assignments we're going to make sure they get good at those assignments and they get another one and they build as a player and you don't just go out there and go oh score 25 points a night for us on talent alone and then we'll see what happens and we'll you know, make a lot of money off your brand name and all that type of stuff, which is what happened with Zion and that's what happened with John ja Morant, which is not, you know, these kids that come out, and I've said this before, similar with AFL, these kids that come out that are 18 and 19 and get given way more money than they should and get given way more fame and way more stardom than they should and way too much media time, it's hard. It is really hard. When you don't come from money, when you don't come from this and you're getting opportunities and people are talking to you and everything's coming at you, it is hard. You don't make good decisions when you're 18 and 19. That's it's a but <laughs> it's a key time in your life when you don't make good decisions and everyone knows it. So to be a professional sports star and the, you know, you know, the head of the franchise and everything is, you know, leaning on you, it's so hard. So I know that Coach Pop's gonna come in here and go, okay here are your assignments, Wembenyama. You're probably not going to play 82 games year one. And I'm not for resting players. I think the NBA should reward players who play more. So there should be bonuses for guys that play more or they should be all-star opportunities for guys that play more and they should have cutoffs for MVP voting and stuff like that if you play, you know, a certain amount of games, stuff like that. So I think there should be that um, element brought in. But in Victor Wembenyama's... Point point. He is such a good player. He has so much talent. He is such a good rim defender. He is such a good outside shooter. He's going to be that hard to play on one but one, you know one-on-one. He needs to build kind of like Jokic did. Build in the shadows. Be a good passer. Become a good team defender. Work on your wing defense. Work on your pick and roll. You know, work on all those little things that are going to make you. At all-rounded basketball player so that you can go and lead a team. Make sure you work on your leadership sh- skills. Make sure you're at training early. Make sure you're leaving training late. These are the types of things that Coach Pop will instill over the next couple of years and will be really important for him because when you don't do that, you rock up with guys like Ja Moran who've got, you know, going to the strip club and taking guns and, you know, Zion getting strippers pregnant and then, you know, making a scene and you're overweight and you're not playing games of basketball. It's like, it's everything but the basketball. And as much as that might be great, you're good at basketball and that's why people like you and that's why you will be respected. And, 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 and that, and, and that's what, I don't know. I, I think if I was to be an NBA player, I'd want to be known for my ball and not known from, you know, my antics at the strip club. So, I think Wemben Yama's got a very interesting career and I'll be very interested to watch him progress over the next, you know, year to two years and just see how much he gets rested and how many games he gets on and off and what his assignments are and how much playing time he gets. It'll be a very interesting uh, couple of years. So I just did want to mention that because I think that'll be awesome. Um, NFL-wise, the running back situation at the moment is completely effed. I just... I'm really I, – I, I think it's sad because these guys are the guys that break the plays. They are the guys that everyone watches the game for. They're the guys that you want on your fantasy football roster. The running back position is the ultimate, ultimate position, and I understand where an owner or a GM is coming from in the point that they don't want to pay them because of purely value and a monetary standpoint – Obviously, if you can get similar production for, I don't know, $10 million less, why would you pay $10 million? It just it makes no sense. However, we don't want to devalue the position to the point that we don't have the quality going into that position. So I think which, you know, people have mentioned the best way to do that is to have a league-wide fund that every team has to pay into and when players hit certain milestones – money gets paid from that fund to those players and that's just what it is it's a it's a league wide compulsory fund that play, every team has to pay into it's probably you know a small percentage of the salary cap whether it's you know 1% or 2% or whatever gets paid into a fund and they just start paying players if they hit their goals if you get or if you get over 1000 yards you get a million dollars or you you score the most touchdowns as a running back you get 5 million dollars something like that it has to be like that because We need to incentivize these players to go out there and play in the running back position because it's such an important position for the game. And I think a lot of them are just getting absolutely rolled at the moment. I feel sorry for Saquon. I feel even even worse for Josh Jacobs than I do Saquon. Josh Jacobs was a leading rusher in the whole league last year and he was nowhere close to signing a deal that was more than his franchise tag of $10 million. And then you see guys like Christian Kirk getting paid $20 million a year. It's like, what the hell is going on right now? This is insane. This is literally insane. Leading Russia in the whole season, you got, and he's not even going to get paid what Christian Kirk got paid. This is like, oh my God. So, yeah, I feel sorry for the backs. I want there to be some sort of resolution. It's going to be tough. They have their own bargaining agreement and they decided on 10.1 million as the franchise tag. It sucks that it's that low. Yeah, it's, you know, they, it's not that they should have thought of it, but it, it sucks that it ended up that low because now we're going to see a whole lot of backs revolting against them. We don't know what the season's going to look like if that happens. So yeah, it's going to be a really weird one for the NFL, but I'm sure it'll sort itself out, especially when there's $10.1 million on the table for a lot of dudes. I mean, it's so hard to knock. How do you pass up that much money when your career, you know, is probably going to be short because of injury and because of the position and the beating that you take going to be hard to pass up $10 million each, but, you know, we'll we'll see what happens there. Um, Tennis, the Alcaraz Djokovic final went so under the radar, but it was that intense. It was that quality. They had 13 juices in the second set in one of the games. 13. I mean, just intensity personified. Both these two guys going out there playing some of the best tennis you'll ever see. Obviously, we know Joker's got that arrogance about him. We know he's got that personality where he's all about, it's me against the world. It's me against you. That's the type of guy he is. That's the personality he has. He's never had many fans because of it, only his local hometown boys. But, hey, that's that's what it is. That's the reputation he's built for himself, and that's how he flies, and he wins a lot of tennis games. But – he meets the young bull Alcaraz. Oh my God, this kid gets to every ball, hits with power, hits with precision. He's, yeah, he just reminds you of Nadal again, the right hand Nadal. He just, the way he goes about his tennis is just so authentic and he's going to be very, very good for a long time to come. He's going to take a lot of titles away from a lot of plays. And unfortunately, that's kind of how tennis has always been. It's been the best one, two, three guys win everything and everyone else just got to fight for the scraps because they've always just got that little thing that's better than them. They've got that little edge. They've got that little chip on their shoulder. They've got that – they're just that a little like, you know, Nadal the workhorse – Djokovic, the defender, also Djokovic in the clutch, Uh, Federer, just the most smooth-moving, beautiful tennis player of all time. So everyone's got that little thing, and Alcaraz is stepping up into that league for sure. So, I mean, awesome, awesome Wimbledon final. If you haven't seen it, go back and watch the highlights. It was, yeah, just a ripping, ripping, ripping final uh, at Wimbledon. I'm going to conclude it there. That's my month in review. I'm really sorry again that I haven't been able to get you guys much content, but man, I mean, I'm still following. I'm still watching. I'm still buried in the group chat. Send me a message if you like. i am reply to anything on my phone all day anyway. So, uh, yeah, obviously love bringing you Kato Sports. We'll be back doing every episode later this week. I'll have my nine-game recap of this week's AFL. That's Kato Sports for the week. Mountain Review, let's go. That's a great idea, Kato.